Today I'd like to welcome Dr. Mike Mazeffi uh, to give a, a talk on the management of bleeding in patients uh, undergoing mechanical circulatory support, as you can see here on the screen. Just a little bit of background. Dr. Mazeffi uh, went to the uh, greatest undergrad university on earth, uh, Notre Dame, and uh, followed up with his MPH and MD, both at Tulane in New Orleans. Um, went to uh, Columbia uh, Presbyterian for his internship. Um, did a, uh, it was a research uh, fellowship <clears throat> research fellow at Mount Sinai and uh, went on, did uh, his anesthesia residency there, cardiovascular anesthesia and critical care um, fellowships as well at Emory. And we've been lucky enough to have him here. He's authored over 50 peer-reviewed publications, many on this uh, very topic. And uh, we uh, thank you here for being here, Mike. Thanks, Mike. Good afternoon, everybody. It's, uh, it's nice to be here. Usually I'm here as a member of the audience. It's a great um, forum. Um, I've learned a lot here over the years uh, during my time at Maryland, so I'm happy to see all of you guys here today. And today I'm going to talk about a topic that for me is a very interesting and clinically, clinically excuse me, challenging topic, and that's going to be um, how we manage bleeding in patients who are either on ECMO or patients who have LVADs. I do not have any disclosures for this talk. I apologize, it's actually a talk I gave at the IRS annual meeting, which is the anesthesia meeting recently, so um, that's why those labels are on the screen. So the objectives of the talk, we're gonna talk a little bit about the epidemiology of bleeding in patients on ECMO and patients who have LVADs. We're gonna talk about the pathophysiology of that bleeding, or at least what's known about the pathophysiology of, of bleeding in these patients. We're gonna talk a little bit about optimal um, anticoagulation practices, if there is such a thing. And then we'll talk a little bit about some of the potential therapeutics or treatments. So I think um, you've all been here long enough. If you're a believer, you think uh, ECMO can be a lifesaver, or at least uh, a bridge to, to a chance. But unfortunately, one of the problems we have in patients on ECMO is that they tend to bleed. So um, these are actually some data from our own institution. They are uh, a little bit old, so they're not totally contemporary. I think we collected these between, I want to say this is like 2012 to 14, so it's a few years old, a couple years old, but it's a pretty large cohort. So you see there's 132 patients uh, total in the cohort, and here we have, so on the first line we actually have uh, a serious bleeding events, we have an incident, um, an incidence, and, and you see that um, for the whole cohort, which includes VA patients, VV patients, patients who have you know, post-cardiotomy shocks, this is you know, quite a diverse group of patients. About half of patients had a serious bleeding event during their time on ECMO. And so you may wonder, how did we define a serious bleeding event, right? It's somewhat arbitrary, but the way we defined it in this particular study is um, we defined it as an event that um, led to transfusion of at least two red cells. So there was you know, either overt bleeding that uh, led to transfusion of two red cell units or um, there was some confirmation of bleeding that led to transfusion of two red cell units. Um, and, it, and you can see the highest risk groups perhaps are uh, the post-cardiotomy uh, shock patients. So that's uh, those where it says PS. Let's see how I get the pointer on there. So PS, you get 74%, it's quite high. And then the VAs obviously bleed more than the VVs, right? So 68 and, and 39, right? A little bit less in the VVs. And then here, which I thought was one of the, 
perhaps useful things that came out of the study, you actually see um, event rates, right? So per 100 ECMO days. So for everyone in the cohort, it was 10 events per 100 days. If you look at the highest risk groups, so you have you know, the post-cardiotomy shock patient or uh, the VA patient, you get um, you know, closer to 20 um, uh, events per 100 days. And the bleeding happens everywhere, to be honest. So it can be in the GI tract, it can be cannulation site, it can be in the chest, and so on. And the bleeding is not trivial. It matters because um, it affects mortality. And here you see a Kaplan-Meier curve. And you see on the top those who did not bleed, and on the bottom you see those who bled. And you see it kind of continues to separate out over time. So how do we predict who's going to bleed? I think that was a really interesting clinical question. And so using that same data in the, in the cohort that we had, we tried to derive a bleeding risk score. And actually, this is a project I worked on with Terry Lonergan, which was a really nice project and led to a nice publication for him. And, and Dan actually also helped with this project. Um, and we first thought about bleeding risk. We actually thought about scores that exist for patients who are anticoagulator, right? So we thought about the HAS-BLED score, and in fact, we calculated HAS-BLED scores for the patients to see if that was predictive. Bottom line is that it was really only fairly predictive. So when you make a, what's called the receiver operating characteristic curve, you can look at how good a predictive model is, and, and it was really only falling in kind of the fair range. We were able to simplify that score and get a little better predictive value by coming up with something called the HAT score. And basically, there were just three variables um, that were very strongly associated with increased risk for bleeding uh, while patients were on ECMO. And, and they were basically being on VA ECMO compared to VV, being old, and having a history of chronic hypertension, which is interestingly in the HAS-BLOOD score as well. And so let me show you how the bleeding risk breaks down by the HAS-BLOOD score, whether you have, or I'm sorry, not by the HAS-BLOOD, by the HAT score. Um, if you have a HAT score of zero, um, it's relatively low, and as you progress to three, you see increases. Now, you see four panels here because we kind of stratified by some other risk factors. So we stratified by those who were pretty thrombocytopenic when they're on ECMO, and those who were not as thrombocytopenic. And you can see those who had a really low platelet count, the risk increased progressively with a HAT score. And then in those who had the higher platelet counts, you saw the same pattern, but the absolute uh, risk for bleeding was not as high. Then we also looked at um, those who were over-anticoagulated more frequently, so those who, uh, you know, their PTT was well above the range where, uh, what was the target range. And again, you see those who weren't and those who were, so this being the higher risk group, this being the lower risk group. Again, you see sort of a progressive increase after stratifying by those variables. So. Perhaps it's a useful score, um, useful just to give you some sense of how much risk there is for bleeding in your ECMO patient. Um, certainly if you work in the LRU and you have you know, patients who are VV, who are young and don't have a lot of comorbidities, then you're falling into the lowest risk group, right? But if you work in the cardiac unit and uh, you, know, you have a VA patient who's elderly, post-cardiotomy shock and has chronic hypertension, then you're in the high risk group. And patients with ventricular assist devices also bleed, unfortunately. Um, perhaps one of the most well-described uh, bleeding problems that they had is, is gastrointestinal bleeding. And this became more frequent with um, sort of the advancement in these devices when they moved towards non-pulsatile devices. So in the early generation device, the HeartMate XVE, there was less um, gastrointestinal bleeding by a lot. 
And then as um, devices move forward and you move towards um, continuous flow, non-pulsatile devices, the bleeding risk increase for, for GI bleeding um, quite, quite a lot. And here you see rates um, that are anywhere between, let's say, you know, 15 and 40 percent. Um, on top of the gastrointestinal bleeding problem, uh, patients are at risk for intracranial hemorrhage. And I think this was um, really highlighted recently in the hardware um, endurance trial where uh, the hardware VAD was being evaluated as destination therapy. And the FDA actually issued a, a warning about high stroke rates in, um, in hardware patients. I think that was about 30% or was somewhere between 25 and 30%. So um, the thought was that that could be related to poor blood pressure control um, and patients were hypertensive seem to have uh, particularly high risk. But here you see um, some data. This is actually from the University of Michigan, I believe. And this data combines both HeartMate data and an HVAD data, and here you see basically about 10% of patients had intracranial hemorrhage, right? So you see um, there's 330 in the cohort, there's 36 who had intracranial hemorrhage, so it's a substantial number of patients. Um, and then you can kind of see, you know, how the rates break down by um, pulsatile VADs, which really are not in use anymore, um, versus the newer generation devices. And again, bleeding matters. Um, as you see here, death at 30 days is high for those who bleed. So um, you see about 33% for those um, who bleed. And if you look at those who had intraparenchymal hemorrhage, excuse me, it's, it's very, very high. So why do people bleed when they have uh, their blood exposed to these devices, uh, whether that's ECMO or that's an LVAD? Um, we're going to talk about that a little bit more. But the simple answer is that when your blood is exposed uh, to constant shear stress in a pump, it causes a number of pathologic changes in your blood. And the normal uh, physiologic range for shear stress is, is here, so it's about 15 to 40 dyne per centimeter squared. And here I mentioned that uh, at 2400 RPMs, you get about five times uh, the normal physiologic level of shear stress on blood. And if, uh, for those of you who are familiar with the HVAD, it runs at about 3,000 RPM. So basically, you know, the hardware VAD, um, it, it exposes blood to about five to six times the normal um, shear stress. And um, if you're talking about the HeartMate 2, which tends to run at even higher RPMs, say 9,000 RPMs, then you're talking about 20 times uh, the normal shear stress on blood. So these are really substantial increases in shear stress to blood. And even at these slightly elevated increased um, shear stress rates, um, you see damage to cells. So you see um, changes in platelet morphology, um, even at levels of 100. And remember, we said that um, in, in the um, HVAD, you're going to see levels that are probably closer to 200. You can have platelet lysis. Um, you can have platelet fragmentation, et cetera. And then I think the really well-described change that um, is thought to account for lots of bleeding is that there's a loss of large von Willebrand factor multimers, which we're going to talk about a lot. Um, but before we get into that, I think it's worth just reviewing the normal function of von Willebrand factor. So this is Eric Adolf von Willebrand. He was a Finnish physician, I believe, and uh, first described von Willebrand's disease. Um, and this is what the molecule looks like. 
And here you see it stored in the endothelial cell in the Weibel Pilati body, which you probably remember from med school. And here you see a little cartoon that kind of depicts um, what the normal function of von Willebrand factor is. So you could almost think of von Willebrand factor as like one of those little burrs that falls off the tree with all the little spikes on it, right? So it sort of serves as this intermediary between the platelet and collagen, which is exposed when you have an endothelial cell uh, injury or when there's vessel damage. And um, the platelet receptor that interacts with von Willebrand factor is the GP1B receptor, uh, and that's pretty important to know. And then another domain of the von Willebrand factor, which I believe is, yeah, the A3 domain binds to collagen. So the A1 domain binds to GP1B, and the A3 binds to uh, collagen here and holds the platelet to uh, the site of um, injury. Other really important thing to know is that von Willebrand factor functions best when it's um, in sort of what's called a large multimer, so when a bunch of these um, molecules are kind of clumped together. So why does shear affect von Willebrand factor? It has to do with conformational changes in the molecule that happen when the, the blood basically runs through a pump, and it has to do with the enzyme that normally cleaves von Willebrand factor um, under physiologic conditions, and that en enzyme, as many of you know, is called Adam TS13, right? And if you have a deficiency in that enzyme, you have TTP, or you can have TTP. Um, but basically, when the blood um, circulates through the pump, it changes the conformation of the von Willebrand factor, allowing it to be cleaved more easily by this enzyme. So the enzyme um, cleaves the molecule, it breaks it down, and you have a loss of these multimers, and that's thought to contribute um, to the bleeding problems that we have. And these data hopefully will be convincing for you. This is from uh, Artificial Organs Journal and, and Chan's group. And um, here you see a top panel um, where you have a control, you have moderate shear conditions, and you have high shear conditions. And the high von Willebrand um, factor multimers are at the top of this gel and the low are at the bottom. And what you see is a progressive loss um, as blood is exposed for greater duration of time in the high von Willebrand factor multimers. Fairly convincing data. Again, you see in the high group, it's more than in the moderate group, or in the low, I should say. Um, this is from the same study, and here what you have is you have um, platelet-poor plasma that's exposed to shear conditions, so panel A, control, panel B, uh, exposed to high shear stress, and then that plasma is added to platelets, and you look at the platelet clumping. Here, nice clumping of platelets in the control. Here, uh, presumable loss of the large von Willebrand factor multimers, and you have you know, poor clumping, basically, right? So nothing's holding together. Um, same kind of information, same study. So another way to think about it is with some of the lab values that we measure. So Von Willebrand factor antigen is a quantitative type of test, tells you how much von Willebrand factor there is. It doesn't tell you about the number of multimers, so it's, it's perhaps not that informative as a test when you're looking for this uh, deficiency. And then you have um, von Willebrand factor ristocetin cofactor activity, which you can think of as a test of von Willebrand factor function. And there you see that you have a um, decline in function as you increase the shear stress, right? So it falls progressively. And this is just the ratio between the antigen and the function. And you see that the antigen, if you're measuring, will stay relatively constant. Um, but basically, the function declines with, um, as you increase the shear stress. 
It's a relatively small study, but I think it demonstrates one really interesting thing. Um, and here you'll see that they only were able to get samples on a couple of people before ECMO. And this is, you know, is always a little bit of a challenge because the patient's really sick and families are very stressed when the patients are being put on ECMO. So it's hard to get samples, you know, right as patients being cannulated at times and so on. So, um, but here you see um, that once patients are on ECMO, um, you start to lose, um, this is actually von Willebrand factor collagen binding. So you could think of it again as another kind of functional assay. Um, basically, you see a, a deficit when patients are on ECMO. There was none before. But interestingly, you also see reversal when patients are off, right? So this is a reversible um, problem that really is um, something that happens when you're on the device. And when the device is gone, it goes away. So we thought about von Willebrand factor, you know, being the primary described problem. And a question that came up um, as a question of interest for us was whether uh, ABO type mattered. And as some of you probably know, patients who have type O blood have less von Willebrand factor at baseline. So um, the thought was, oh, okay, if these people have lower von Willebrand factor at baseline and then, um, you know, they're um, exposed to high shear conditions, perhaps they're going to bleed more. Um, so we, we looked at that. Um, using some of the data we collected on the uh, initial cohort that I showed you. And um, interestingly, so type O blood here, you see other blood types. Type O is the most common blood type. Um, you see, uh, let me just see where it is. So bleeding during ECMO, um, basically the same amount, right? So there was no difference in the um, frequency of bleeding during ECMO. But the one thing that perhaps stood out to us was that the people in the O group, there were more sort of outliers who got very heavily transfused in um, the, the patients with type O. And if you look at people who just got tons of red cells on ECMO, there were actually more in, in the type, who had type O blood. And this was about you know 22% to about 7%. So the way we interpreted that anyway was that you might not have more frequent bleeding, but if a bleeding event occurred, it was um, likely to be a bleeding event that was more severe, which kind of made sense to us because um, maybe there's some inciting event, you know, someone puts in a, an NG tube or, you know, there's uh, something that bleeds, but if von Willebrand factor levels are lower and, and so on, maybe they tend to bleed more during that event. So which is kind of an interesting thing to think about. Um, certainly not a definitive study. It was just kind of, um, you know, some pilot data, but maybe something worth um, looking at um, in larger groups of patients even in LVAD patients where it could be particularly important. So, all right. And, um, you know, so we talked a lot about ECMO and von Willebrand factor. Well, in fact, the same happens with patients who have implanted um, ventricular assist devices. Um, although it's been better described for some devices than other, this table is a little bit busy. But, you know, the two devices that are commonly used now are the HeartMate 2 and, and the Heartware HVAD. Um, and both of those devices... Um, are non-pulsatile devices, so they lead to um, loss of, of multimers and they have GI bleeding. But the HeartMate XVE, which we talked about, was the original device, humongous. It was like a you know very large device, so went by the wayside. Was clearly inferior to um, you know the more modern LVADs. Was not as much of a problem, um, and in fact, even our um, cardiac anesthesia fellow today, he gave for a grand rounds a talk about um, kind of. Uh, the trajectory of LVADs and, you know, next generation LVADs, but that was something he highlighted. So with the XV, the GI bleeding rate was like 5% or something. 
and then when you moved on to the um, you know the non-pulsatile devices, it increased to you know, like 30%. So it was a very substantial jump. I don't know why. If anybody knows why and has a good explanation, it would be uh, it'd be great for the group. So um, non-pulsatile devices are smaller, perhaps simpler mechanically. So you know they're uh, the company's moved in that direction, but one of the bad things seems to be that there's maybe um, you know this this von Willebrand factor problem. Um, so what happens to platelet function um, uh, when platelets are exposed to um, these devices? The short answer is it's really complicated. I don't pretend to know the full answer, and there are lots of conflicting data out in the published li literature. And what I mean by that is there are a lot of data that suggest um, exposure to high shear conditions causes or leads to platelet activation, and there are a lot of data that suggests platelets aggregate poorly in patients um, whose blood is exposed to high shear conditions um, because um, you perform aggregometry with different agonists. Platelets don't um, aggregate as well. But if you do flow cytometry and you look at um, you know, platelet um, receptors, et cetera, lots of receptors that would um, indicate activation or upregulated in, in these patients. Um, but it consistently in studies that looked at aggregation to agonists, so using multiplate or other devices, you see poor aggregation to ADP, collagen, um, and, and Risto. So, you know, this is just a, a sort of a cartoon showing the same thing. So uh, P2Y12, uh, you have up here, this is uh, ADP is an agonist, and uh, clopidogrel works on this receptor, right? So um, when ADP is used as an agonist, platelets do not aggregate as well. Um, and um, you have um, basically PAR receptors. This is a receptor for TRAP. Um, not sure that TRAP has been used much as an agonist in ECMO patients or what the data are for that, but certainly um, we know this interaction, GP1B and collagen, is, is um, absolutely affected. So again, you sh it shows poor aggregation when collagen is used as an agonist. So if it's not the platelet function, maybe it's just the counts. You know, the patients are thrombocytopenic. Maybe that's what explains it. Um, again, wish it were that simple, but um, not necessarily that simple. Certainly, the HAT score data that I showed you showed that the patients who had you know, lower platelet nadirs tended to have more bleeding, but not um, all patients have falls in platelet counts on ECMO, interestingly. So um, this is a relatively recent study from intensive care medicine um, from the Columbia group who has a pretty big experience, and these are all VV ECMO patients. But, I mean, I think you could say there's probably a general trend towards fall overall, meaning the line probably falls like this, but there's a lot of outliers too. I mean, you have people or platelet counts are jumping and so on. Uh, they didn't, I mean, this doesn't account for who's transfused when and so on, so it's, data's a little bit messy, but um, it's probably, it's probably one of the best longitudinal studies just describing platelet counts in, in ECMO patients over time. This is also kind of a nice study. Um, it's a relatively small study um, that was published by Nair, um, and it, it's sort of a longitudinal study looking at a variety of coagulation parameters in patients on ECMO. So um, here, um, the greens represent sort of the normal ranges in all these things. So platelet counts started out normal, and then they sort of fell and were stable sort of over time here. Um, fibrinogen level, actually, my experiences are has been generally that when we check a fibrinogen level in an ECMO patient, although it depends a little bit on the circumstances. If the patient just came out of you know major surgery, sure, they could be hypofibrinogenemic, but you know, in someone who didn't have surgery who's on ECMO, often the fibrinogen level becomes elevated, right, because it's 
sort of an acute phase reactant, and, and often we see elevated fiber engines, you know, 400 or 500 or something. So um, that kind of sh is shown here too. You don't see much below the green bar. Um, some of the standard uh, coagulation tests, so prothrombin time is a little bit prolonged. It's not dramatically prolonged, so perhaps there's some procoagulant factor um, deficiency that um, you know progresses a little bit over time. Could be in the common pathway, could be in the extrinsic pathway, um, and that again is that's um, sort of um, he, this is the intrinsic pathway. So you see the intrinsic pathway is actually normal or even above normal, and probably the reason for that is that factor eight levels um, tend to be increased in patients who have, you know, inflammatory kind of states and stuff, so that's maybe not totally surprising. I believe that this is done with heparinase, so the heparin effect is, is gone there. Um, same study, same kind of data, so some ROTEM data. Um, here we have um, the clotting time on XTEM. So this is similar to the R time on TEG, except it's specific for the extrinsic pathway, and this would be specific for the intrinsic pathway. So intrinsic pathway, mostly normal, like we just talked about, probably related to factor eight levels that are elevated. And, um, you know, XTEM, there's some, um, you know, uh, it's about half, basically, that are, um, you know, normal versus elevated. Um, platelet aggregation, so here you see a variety of... Um, Agonists, you see Risto, Collagen, Trap, and ADP, um, and you see um, a very poor response to ADP. So 72% were low. And you see a variety of um, you know impairments here to these to these various um, agonists. So uh, we've talked, I think, about von Willebrand factor. We've talked about platelets. Um, we've talked about uh, procoagulant factor levels a little bit, although we didn't specifically measure those, and there's really not much data out there that has. Um, maybe it's the anticoagulation. Maybe we just over-anticoagulate people all the time on ECMO, and that's part of the problem. And uh, actually, I'm going to show you some data that maybe is convincing that that's a major part of the problem. Um, so why do we need to anticoagulate ECMO patients? Um, certainly their blood is exposed to artificial surface, although all the tubing we use now is heparin-bonded. Um, ECMO is different than cardiopulmonary bypass, right, in that the blood constantly circulates and it never just sits sort of stagnant in a bucket like it does when the patient's on bypass. So it requires substantially less anticoagulation than cardiopulmonary bypass. Um, but I think there's really not a lot of evidence that um, would help us to understand how we should best anticoagulate patients on ECMO. Um, we use a protocol, as you guys know, at Maryland where we do lower level for VV and higher level for VA, and we use the PTT um, to guide heparin anticoagulation. This is pretty compelling data, though, um, that was published by a Korean group, and um, I believe this is all VV patients, if I remember correctly. I can't remember off the top of my head, but here you see um, two different ACT levels, right? So you see the higher level, 180 to 220, and then not like a huge difference, but there's a lower level, 140 to 160, and look at the difference in major bleeding is enormous. It's basically 50% um, absolute difference in major bleeding events when you just decrease uh, your ACT tar target so much. Um, there were higher rates of death in those that were um, anticoagulated more and really not much difference in, in thrombosis rate. In fact, there was more thrombosis in the patients with a higher um, ACT target, interestingly, and the oxygenator changes were basically identical. Um, 
So for LVADs, how should you anticoagulate patients? Uh, I think it's a little more straightforward, uh, at least um, you know what's been described thus far, although I think that is very likely to change um, in coming years, especially with um, you know, dibigatran having a, a monoclonal antibody that allows for immediate reversal. Um, but in any event, right now, the standard is to use warfarin and aspirin in most centers. We have a little bit um, different kind of protocol here, which is a very interesting protocol. And um, if you talk to, you know, Eric uh, about, you know, the protocol, I think um, Eric, as well as some of our um, cardiac surgeons, you know, the idea was that perhaps you could tailor anticoagulation to patients individually, and that would help lower the bleeding rate. So we have actually an extremely <laughs> complex protocol for um, anticoagulation in LVAD patients, whereas most centers or many centers um, just use warfarin and aspirin. Uh, but often the, you know, the INR goal is 2 to 2.5 in, in a lot of patients. Um, and here we're using actually um, diperidamol and aspirin in some patients. Diperidamol is kind of nice because it has a pretty short half-life, so it goes away, I think, a little more quickly. Um, okay, so on to, you know, what to do when the patients actually bleed. Um, well, obviously depends on how significant is the bleed. Um, and it depends on, you know, what kind of device you have, right? If it's a, if it's a device that goes into a vein, well, then you feel a little bit uh, better holding uh, anticoagulation for a while. If it's a device that goes into an artery, then, you know, the risks are real for stroke or limb ischemia and so on. Um, talking about LVAD patients for a second, this is just an example of one suggested algorithm for managing um, GI bleeding, and they talk about, you know, holding warfarin and aspirin and then holding aspirin permanently and just restarting warfarin for most patients. That's reasonable. Um, there are case reports of patients who had persistent bleeding with warfarin who were treated with uh, oral direct thrombin inhibitor like uh, dibigatran, and, and those patients actually, uh, at least in a couple of case reports, did not have uh, recurrent bleeding. So perhaps that's an option. I think you're going to see more of that uh, happening as time goes on and perhaps even some clinical trials. Um, and so what hemostatic therapies might work. So we're going to talk about some things. And actually, I kind of left out of this talk one big one, which is just topical hemostatic agents, which we use a huge amount of and are effective for some things, you know, cannula bleed or um, some things on the surface anyway. But um, things you'd think about, right? So if the problem is von Willebrand factor, maybe you should give DDAVP. Uh, maybe you should give von Willebrand factor concentrate. Cryoprecipitate has von Willebrand factor, so maybe you can give cryo. Um, platelets is a patient's thrombocytopenic, although what level are you transfusing at? I think that's, um, you know, somewhat arbitrary or maybe debatable. Um, should we use antifibrinolytics in, in patients who are on ECMO? We don't really, but some places have. Uh, maybe we're thinking about it. And if patients have really severe bleeding, are you going to, um, you know, go for the big guns? Are you going to give um, recombinant factor 7? Uh, you want to use something else? So we'll kind of talk about, you know, what's out there in the literature. So I think using DDAVP is reasonable. Um, usually the dose is about 0.3 to 0.4 mics per kilo. It depends. Uh, the drug, uh, the drug's efficacy, excuse me, is going to depend on your stores of von Willebrand factor, right? So if you don't have much stored up, um, you're not going to release that much. But it will give you some uh, temporary release of von Willebrand factor. Um, there are no trials to demonstrate efficacy. But it's a fairly innocuous drug, right? And it's a fairly cheap drug. So I think it's worth trying if you have a um, you know, bleed and you want to try it. I think it's reasonable. Um, just, a, again, a little diagram showing how it works. We kind of talked about this already, but 
Um, a lot of uh, von Willebrand factor is stored in the weibel pilati body um, and can be released from endothelial cells when uh, you give DDAVP. Um, so von Willebrand factor concentrates could be an option. Well, it's going to be sort of an expensive option, right? And there are a lot of these types of products available. Um, I know we have Humate P at the medical center. I don't know if we have any other products. If there are any pharmacists in the audience, perhaps they could answer that question. But the products are all a little bit different. They have different ratios of um, von Willebrand factor risto activity to von Willebrand factor antigen ratio. And that, remember we talked about one is a functional assay, one is a quantitative. So if you have more of the multimers, you're going to have more risto because uh, you, know, you get more function with big multimers. And they all have different kind of degrees of, of the large multimers. Um, for patients with diagnosed von Willebrand disease, the dose is you know, in the range of 40 to 80 units per kilogram. I'm going to show you the package insert in a second, but you also have to remember that these um, von Willebrand factor concentrates also have factor 8, and factor 8 has a longer half-life, so if you use them repeatedly, you run the risk of having elevated factor 8 levels that kind of lag behind, and so you maybe run a risk for late thrombosis. Here's the package insert for Humate P, and you see it comes in um, a variety of vials here. Um, so you can get different size vials depending on the dose that you want to use. They talk a little bit about the risk for thromboembolic events, um, which is somewhat related to factor eight having a longer half-life. Most common adverse events, they talk about uh, basically allergies. So you kind of see that described down at the bottom. And here are some suggested doses for patients who have von Willebrand disease. And this is acquired von Willebrand uh, syndrome, right? So that's what we're talking about. Um, and here you have type 1, which is a quantitative uh, deficit for uh, a von Willebrand factor. And you see for minor bleeds, they say, you know, use desmopressin. And for um, a little bit more significant bleeds, they give a dose range here. So uh, 40 to 60. Um, and, and, you know, they give a, a dosing interval. Again, if you dose too frequently, you run the risk of really high factor eight levels that'll kind of lag uh, behind. Um, if you want to, uh, you know, use something that's perhaps a little cheaper and you feel a little bit better about, you can use cryoprecipitate. Um, and that will give you some von Willebrand factor as well, um, as well as some other things, right? So it'll give you um, fibrinogen and factor 13. Um, and uh, it's pro possibly a reasonable approach, although we said often uh, fibrinogen levels are quite high in these patients. We check them if you're giving, you're, I guess, giving primarily to give uh, von Willebrand factor. Um, but you, know, you give cryo, like let's say a patient's on ECMO, they're bridging to lung transplantation. You're exposing them to a lot of donors because we pool cryoprecipitate from multiple donors, and each time you're giving you know, five or six separate donors. So perhaps there's a theoretic risk there for more antibodies to be given to the patient and so on. Um, we give platelets all the time. Um, when should you give them, I think, is, is somewhat arbitrary and, and really debatable. Um, I think it's a really important question uh, for patients that are for, um, for basically um, centers that are very busy ECMO centers is what do you want to use as a cutoff for platelet transfusion? I remember even you know, Dan sent an email, I don't know, a while back about this very question, asking what platelet count do you consider an absolute threshold for transfusing? And, I mean, people kind of had some agreement, but uh, I think it's, it's a very interesting question, right? Um, some centers might use platelet function testing. Here we don't really, we could do that, but it's, it's easier in Europe because they have um, approval to use multi-plate and other um, kind of rapid tests at the bedside as point-of-care tests. Uh, multi-plate's not approved for clinical use in the U.S. Um, there are potentially some other options. Um, you could use uh, uh, something called... Um, 
PFA, we have the PFA 100, right, Dan? I'm trying to remember. Yeah. And then also you can um, look at uh, you can look at platelet function on the verify now, but usually we do that for aspirin and clopidogrel effects. Um, so we have some ability to test uh, functional ass assays on platelets here at the bedside, but the turnarounds are not super super rapid on those tests. Excuse me. Antifibrinolytics, Amicar, TXA might be reasonable. I mean, I certainly think you could try a bolus if someone had recurrent mucosal bleeding, they had a nosebleed, they had oropharyngeal bleeding, um, or in an area where there tends to be a lot of fibrinolysis. Um, it has been used, and there are studies um, that describe its use in ECMO patients, particularly in pediatrics, and they describe decreased bleeding risk for patients who are on ECMO. So um, really just no data for adults, but something worth thinking about. Um, and when you get the really big bleeders, um, how do you feel about giving uh, factor seven? So in a VA ECMO patient, well, I wouldn't feel too good about it personally, but people have done it. Um, this is a case series um, of 15 cases where it was used, and the authors um, concluded uh, they used it in 11 VAs, four VVs. Um, they thought bleeding dramatically decreased in 14 patients. There were no thrombotic events. There was one patient who had a stroke, but they couldn't confirm whether it was related to uh, factor seven administration, so <laughs> interesting. Um, one really interesting problem we deal with a lot, um, and for you guys who've rotated up there, and um, as Dan knows, he probably has some nice little tricks for this, airway bleeding can be a nightmare in ECMO patients um, and very persistent. Uh, I remember one patient, um, actually not an ECMO patient, but a patient who, we had the BIVAD patient um, somewhere in bed 13 or 14, right, Dan, who had airway bleeding literally for about a month that didn't stop and required multiple interventions. Um, but we have great colleagues in IP who come and help us, um, and they use a variety of um, uh, methods to, to help stop these things, uh, including um, APC and a cryo to remove large clots or obstructive. Um, Nosebleeds can also be a nightmare and can really set patients back. We've had a number of these um, over time. Um, sometimes they require very prolonged packing, um, and typically um, the packing is with polyvinyl alcohol sponges um, or oxidized cellulose. Um, sometimes they have to be packed for you know five days, six days, seven days. I think in an extreme case, we had one patient who was packed for like 12 days. Um, often we put them on prophylactic antibiotics while they're packed, and usually, thankfully, it stops in time. It can be very unpleasant for the patients. So I did want to tell you about one last thing, and I'm going to wrap it up maybe for a few quick questions. So um, this is just some, I'm going to show you some data from uh, sort of a pilot study that I have ongoing where we're looking at um, some mechanisms of bleeding in VA ECMO patients. And this device is called the Total Thrombus Analysis System, um, TTAS. It's a pretty cool device. It basically has a high-definition camera right here, and uh, there's a little chip that goes in, and the chip has a couple little, um, I guess they're almost like canals, and these canals are lined with collagen. And then the blood that we use, we use whole blood in this assay, it gets pushed through these channels using, I believe, mineral oil. Um, so we have mineral oil that pumps it through, and it creates conditions that are very similar to um, an artery. So you can, have, you can create vein-like conditions or artery-like conditions, depending on how much you push it through. And this graph that I'm showing you here kind of shows what some normal values are. So the machine, as stuff clots in those little capillaries or those little canals, 
the machine detects that as a buildup in pressure as it's trying to push the oil through. And so um, you see here that, say, by one, one of the um, metrics or markers um, that the machine uses is how long does it take to build up to a pressure of 10? And you can see in most normal patients that happens between, say, two and four minutes. Um, this pilot study that we're doing now, we've done, I think, seven or eight patients, and we look at blood samples on days one or two, and then day three and five, so it's three blood samples. Um, we have done 17 samples, and out of those 17, only one patient out of 17 ever even reached 10. So that gives you an idea that they have very substantial impairment in their normal um, platelet aggregation. And I want to show you a video of this device because I think it will, you know, it, it's very telling. So what you're going to see at the beginning of the video is um, the blood sample from the patient at baseline. So this is what it, these are the little capillaries here. Um, you see on the tips of them, there's a little bit of platelet clumping on the tips of these and the high definition cameras scrolling over. You can kind of look at um, these things as time goes on. You don't really see any of these channels are occluded, right? So um, you don't see a lot of platelet aggregation. <clears throat> and so we treat with von Willebrand factor, you know, for the experiment. And here you see major change, right? So you see platelets clumping and clogging these channels. You see red cells, um, you know, stopped up behind there. Um, so you see some some significant changes. We don't see it in every single patient. So, and, and as part of this study, we're also going to measure, you know, um, a number of plasma um, procoagulant factor levels and von Willebrand factor levels and multimer, multimer levels, excuse me, et cetera, and we'll, you know, sort of correlate with this. But um, in some patients, you see dramatic improvements um, when you add von Willebrand factor, and some you see less change. And then you also see, even in some, you see, you know, the von Willebrand factor improves things on, say, you know, day two or three, and then on day five, it makes no difference. So it's, I know it's a little confusing. Still need to sort it out, but um, have more patients to enroll, and I want to just give you, a, um, you know, a little bit of taste of of that, because I think the picture is really cool. So that's all I have for you guys. So we'll the opposite side of coagulation. I guess anecdotally, I see not infrequently a lot of patients on ECMO getting AP3 deficiency. Sure. Yeah, how frequent is your question is how frequent is heparin-induced thrombocytopenia on ECMO? Yeah, I mean, I can't, maybe, I can only think of maybe one case, right, that had a positive SRA or something, but. Yeah, and don't forget, you have to be real careful because that hit SRA is almost always going to be high in people with bats and stuff. It is higher in bats. That's been shown. I don't think it's been higher in ECMO. But you really got to watch out for the hit, which is the SRA, because you can have some real false positives. Agree, too, Jess. I mean, for sure, the, you it's very common for patients to develop antithrombin deficiency when they're on heparin over time for long periods of time. And I mean, we don't always check it, but it, it happens. Yeah, and if you watch it, like, granted, we don't really look at it that much. We just look at the PTT. But if you look at the heparin dose that the patients are getting each day, it's not uncommon that, you know, as time goes on, it's kind of like escalating because AT3 is falling and we're just not paying attention or something. But.